Hi, and welcome to NACIO Voices, where we talk all things state IT. I'm Amy Glasscock in Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm Alex Whitaker in Washington, D.C. Today we're talking with Katie Savage, who is the CIO for the state of Maryland. Katie started in Maryland earlier this year, and today we're going to get to know her a little bit. Katie, welcome to NACIO Voices, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, Katie, so great to have you. So we would love for you to tell us and our listeners about your professional background and what led you to the CIO role in Maryland. So I have primarily a a DevOps background, but I started life as an urban planner, and I have a Master of City and Regional Planning from the University of, of Pennsylvania. And I got my start into technology by working for the Chicago chief data officer. Um, Chicago was the, the first city to establish a chief data officer position under, under Mayor Rahm Emanuel. And I joined as an urban planner um, supporting the chief data officer because I had the, the technical background on how cities use data. And we worked together to build the city's first open data portal. And from there, parlayed that experience into creating a public-private partnership between the city of Chicago and a number of private companies, MasterCard, Microsoft, Nokia here, and a couple of others, Accenture, to use data uh, and to, to think about how we could develop software for cities, particularly city agencies, to utilize so I was able to turn my, you know, my planning background and my data background into really a, a, a DevOps kind of experience. And from there, I was asked to join the Defense Digital Service as chief of staff. So I moved from Chicago to D.C. in, in early 2019 to continue the work on developing software and, and also to help oversee a cybersecurity team that was part of our, our remit at Defense Digital Service. So I did that for four years, moving from chief of staff to deputy director and then eventually director of, of the team. And then in, in late 2022, I was asked by Governor Moore to serve his administration as, as CIO and to bring the focus particularly on user-centered design and product development coupled with my cybersecurity background to the work in Maryland. I think it's uh, so cool, urban planning and city planning backgrounds and how you, you've used data. So that's really interesting. Um, so, But you also mentioned that you did some significant work at Defense Digital Services from Operation Warp Speed in identifying Afghans who had helped the U.S. and should be eligible for asylum. So um, I think Amy and I would love to know how you how and why you mentioned it, but but why you decided to move from the federal government to state government. I am thrilled to be back in state and local government. I really enjoyed my my time at DOD because I got to work on such human-centered projects like helping process Afghan refugees or helping you know, think about how we were delivering a safe vaccine to the American people during uh, during Operation Warp Speed. So when I had a chance to make you know, a career move that would bring me back to an entirely citizen-focused experience, I, I jumped at the opportunity. That's awesome. So, Katie, you've been with the state of Maryland for about six months now, I believe. What are you most excited about as you look toward the rest of this year and then into the next couple of years? We have the bones of some really great teams at DOIT, uh, the Department of, of Information Technology that I, I oversee. So, we have our you know, IT operations shop. 
And we also have the Office of Security Management, which is where our cybersecurity practices and, and expertise lives. And then we, we have the sort of nascent stages of what I'm calling a product development shop. We have some pieces that we've been offering to the state in terms of product management, product development, um, and kind of user-centered design or you know, partnering around statewide platforms. But that's very early stage, and I'm excited to, to build that out. So to me, you know, we have this really exciting, diverse portfolio um, across DevOps, cybersecurity, and product development. And I'm excited to really you know, sort of build out all three areas and, and bring in some leadership and expertise from you know, the greater D.C. area to help lead those teams. That's awesome. Well, I can't wait to learn more about that as it moves forward. So what are your sort of, would you consider your major priorities or initiatives outside of that for the state? They're definitely related. So the first order of business for me is clarifying our products and services. I saw this at, at the Department of Defense as well. You know, we, we need to ensure that we have a good framework for what we build versus what we buy, uh, what needs to be custom versus you know, what's a, a commercial off-the-shelf product that we can buy and, and do some light customization. And we need to think about owning products at the statewide level that scale to multiple agencies, opposed to sort of owning these bespoke products that um, really get us, you know, when it comes to legacy modernization, really mire us down because they're so custom and so bespoke to one agency. So the first goal for me is to clarify the product and service offerings that do it offers such that they're repeatable and scalable and transferable across agencies as much as possible. The second area of focus for me is cybersecurity. You know, we, we do have an incredible team in the Office of Security Management, and I think there's a number of ways that we can mature that, that team. So, you know, we first and foremost need to look at the security of our own products, making sure that security management and our, and our IT ops team are, are working to ensure that the products that we push out are completely secure uh, the second piece is, is how we work with our sister agencies and you know, the other agencies in, in, in the state of Maryland to ensure that their attack surface, their, their environments are secure. And then you were increasingly thinking about how we partner with state and local agencies as well, you know, to the extent that they also represent, you know, they represent a, an attack surface that we need to be cognizant of and, and provide support around. So the second area is to, to mature and, and be more strategic uh, with regard to our, our cybersecurity. And then the, the third is, uh, is really this sort of what I'm calling a, a sort of startup phase of a product development. You know, as I mentioned, we have pieces of that already that we offer um, across the state in terms of portfolio management, product management, PM services, things like that. But I really want us to be an innovation partner to other state agencies. And, and this is really where my background in, in DevOps comes in. Um, and you know, from the work I did in Chicago to the work I did at DOD with the services, I really want to partner to understand what, you know, what a specific business case is or business problem is that is represented by the governor's office or another agency partner together to come up with creative solutions that ultimately serve the residents of, of Maryland. 
Well, it sounds like the whole estate approach is really thriving in Maryland. So uh, Nasio always loves to hear that. So I, we found a quote from you that I, that I want to read that I thought was really interesting. And you said, I think one of the most important lessons that I learned in undertaking crises and deploying teams in times of crisis is not to sacrifice user design and sometimes that you have to go slow in order to go fast. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of user design in digital services? And really, what did you mean by going slow in order to go fast? The problem that I've seen across my career and you know, now at all three levels of government state, local, and federal, is a agency or an executive will come to me in the the development space and say, I believe this is my problem and I would like you to build, you know, X is my problem, I I think Y is the solution. And nine times out of 10, the problem was not actually represented. So to to give an example, uh, one of the first projects I worked on in the city of Chicago was creating an underground mapping tool. And the the issue that was represented was there was 30 different utilities and companies that needed access to the underground, to the the right-of-way below the streets of the city of Chicago. And the problem, as it was initially represented, was we need a digital map. You know, we need need to move from paper to, to a digital environment. But in spending time with the actual construction companies and utilities, what we realized, it wasn't about digitizing all at once. It was the fact that every day there's a construction incident in the city of Chicago, and it's about capturing that real-time change to the map, whether it's paper or digital. And obviously, we want to move towards digital, but the real problem was you you have a construction company that is making a change that doesn't get reflected in the rest of the system. And so that's where that totally, totally reoriented how we thought about the problem and therefore how we thought about the solution. So to me, it's it's really important that we slow down and really challenge. We, we don't jump right into requirements gathering, but we really challenge what the business problem is, what the business case is before we jump to even requirements gathering or solution development. That's great. Well, we uh, are talking a lot about the you know user experience, citizen experience, um, and things like that around NASIO right now. So definitely wanted to ask you about that. So my next question is one that I haven't asked on the podcast before, but I was really excited to see on your Twitter profile that you are a returned Peace Corps volunteer, which is something we share. And I would love to hear about your Peace Corps service and how that experience influenced you or maybe what lessons you learned from your service that you still use today. Sure. Can I ask where you serve? Yes. Indonesia, 2012 to 14. Oh, wow. So I bet you had a, a totally different experience than I did. And I was in Southern Africa in, in Malawi from 2008 to 2010. When, and you probably know this then. The, I think Peace Corps was one of the original sort of user-centered design. They were, they were using user-centered design before it was called that. Um, you might remember from your own experience, they had that that brown handbook, the participatory, um, I think it's called participatory action. Um, and it's this handbook that they give out to Peace Corps volunteers exactly for the purpose of helping, making sure that you understand a problem before you introduce a solution to a community. Mm-hmm. And the practices that are in there are things like a transect walk. So literally walking through your village with, you know, accompanied by community members where they're pointing out, you know, challenges that represent sort of what their, what their day-to-day experience might be that, 
um, might lead to, you know, disease or a lack of education. Um, there's other activities in there around, you know, specific to women and girls and how we think about challenges to their education. So for me, Peace Corps, and, and this is actually why I want to do it before I went into an urban planning career. So I think Peace Corps is one of, sort of the original proponents of, of user-centered design. And I did end up learning a ton about how we think about communities, how we think about users by actually living their experience and living in a village for two years. So I think it's informed everything I've done in software, which, which sounds crazy because, you know, I, I didn't have electricity. Um, you know, I, I didn't have running water or electricity, but, but yet it's informed my entire software development and, and you know, high tech career. But it really um, rooted me in, in how we think about users and how we think about a lived experience. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think um, I did have electricity and running water and even internet, but, you know, we're part of a Return Peace Corps group of folks here in Kentucky. And every we have people that served in the early 60s through, you know, more recent years. And it is interesting how a lot of the, our experiences are so universal at the same time. So some of the things that you're talking about um, definitely applied to my experience as well. And, you know, just giving you a different way of thinking about things and thinking about what does a community really need instead of what is just our perception coming in thinking that they need. Um, so that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Right. And what resources are available? Yeah. You know, I, I know our Peace Corps director, for example, had served in the 60s and he would, he, you know, give us a version of kids today. You know, I used to have to <laughs> record my voice and mail it on a tape to, you know, for my family and I didn't see them. And, um, you know, in my group, a number of people went home for the holidays or, yeah. you know, I, I was pre-smartphone, but now I think most people uh, communicate with their host country prior to coming, you know, via um via phone. And so it also, I think, is a, um, helps you put in context what resources are available to your community based on how the world is, is changing. And yeah. I think that's also yeah. important when it comes to, to technology. What are some of the technologies that can be introduced into a community such that, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to totally overhaul the entire infrastructure, but there are some, some applications or some use cases that, that can be solved. And so I think it also gives you like a, a context for what we can introduce into those communities. And I'll add that a lot of developing countries, you know, we kind of assume that they're going to go in the the same, do the same steps that, that we've done technology-wise, but they really can skip them. So like even, you know, in, in Indonesia, when we were there in 2012 through 2014, and then we went back to visit in 2019, things had changed a lot. Everybody had smartphones and there were apps for food delivery, even in the village and apps for a, a motorcycle or a car to come pick you up, just like Uber, which would have made things a lot easier for us as volunteers. But also, you know, like the banking system is so easy and advanced. I mean, you it's so easy to transfer money to a bank where that's sort of clunky here in the U.S. Um, people went straight to cell phones, um, didn't really stop at landlines, or didn't even maybe even have landlines in their homes. And so it is different. And um, the technology works a little bit differently and skips some steps in a lot of cases. Absolutely. And, and I think I think it skips some steps, like you said, and we have an opportunity for a mobile first generation to, you know, to sort of test things out. And along those lines, because, you know, in, if you grew up, you know, maybe in, in the Western world, 
especially our generation, you, we sort of had technology, you know, we, we came of age alongside, alongside technology. And it's also a good experience where, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, where I was in, in the developing world, it's a good, it really forces you to think, you know, again, about what is the user's experience because it might be someone's, you know, first experience with a phone. And so you really have to, you're really forced to think about what is the kind of basic experience such that, you know, I can, I can, you know, what is the community I'm working with? What are they going to be able to utilize uh, to the extent that technology is, is totally brand new? So it also, I think, really forces the issue on, you know, meeting people where they are. So you know, the more we're talking about it, I just I think it, it was so informative for for my career now. That's all really fascinating to learn, and I, I for one have never even had a landline in my home since I've been an adult. So I can see how uh, technology can just skip based on on needs. Right. Really cool. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, Amy, I wonder if we know how many CIOs over the last couple of years have also served in the Peace Corps. Um, if you're if you're a CIO who has, let us know. I would love. I would love to know that as well. Actually, yeah, yeah. Maybe we can. Uh, it probably won't be an official NASIO project. Maybe <laughs> we can start working yeah. on it. So, anyhow, um, we can't let you go without asking you a couple of fun questions about life outside of work and what we call the lightning round. Are you ready? I am. I'm a little nervous, but I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these are tough ones, Amy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, which is better in the summer, Chicago or Annapolis? I'm going to cheat a little bit because I will say that Chicago is the best in early to late fall. Um, it's just beautiful at that time of year. It's, I used to always run the Chicago Marathon when I lived there. Um, it's just this crisp fall weather. Uh, and Annapolis is, is super cute downtown. Um, yeah, I brought my parents there recently and we were out on the water. So I think, I think each has a, a perfect season. I'll say that. Yeah, pretty different. I've done yeah. the river the river architecture tour in Chicago three times. It's amazing. It, well, it's never not been raining in thirty degrees, so I'm just desperate. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I'm desperate to do it on a beautiful day. Maybe one day. Um, it, it is worth it. Uh, it is. It is worth right. it. There's a reason I've, I've done it three times, even with bad weather. So. Okay, so what's a great piece of advice that you've received? I received recently, in, in stepping into this job, the advice to make sure that people feel seen. And I, I think about that a lot, especially coming into, you know, I've never worked in state government before. My team is, is new to me. And to make sure that the team really feels seen and understood, even, even new to the role, make sure I take the time to understand why things were done a certain way. doesn't mean that I, I can't change them or won't change them, but to really make sure that people feel seen and understood and that their, their practices and methodologies and reasons for doing things, that I have the context around that. So I, I try and keep that top of mind because there, there are a lot of big changes that I, I want to make the state. And I'm, I'm really excited and really appreciate the governor's support in, in making changes. But I also want to make sure that my team and the, even the other agencies feel seen and heard and understood for the reasons you know, they've, they've created for the infrastructure that we currently have in place and, and the practices that are, are currently being uh, to, to promulgated across the state. That's great. So what is your least favorite genre of music? We've always asked people in the past what kind of music they like. So I'm flipping it a little. What is your least favorite genre of music? 
So this one was an easy one for me. Um, I hate jam bands. Like really hate jam bands. Like, oh, wow. I, I know this is gonna. I know like I'm gonna like irk a lot of people with this. Well, um, I, in, I including my, our co-host I, here. <laughs> I, I probably so talked about husband. fish a lot on this podcast. <laughs> oh no, no, but it is a common. <laughs> I, I've dealt with it plenty, so no offense. To <laughs> well, then I, you know, when my husband and I on our first date, like we had this. Um, we had this conversation and I said that I just, he's really into music. And I said like, well, I, I can't stand Wilco, like Wilco and, and from Chicago, like I should, you know, I should, but it's just, it's just not my, my dream. And uh, so then we, I was actually talking with him about this this morning and I said, it's, it's, would you say Wilco is a jam band? So then we were going back and forth about whether or not it's a jam band, but directionally, I would say that's, that's just not my, my scene, which probably says a lot about my psychology and, and need for structure. But uh, yeah. Sure. Here we are. <laughs> well, you're definitely not alone in that. So <laughs> most people on staff are like, oh, it's so nice of you to go to these shows with your husband. And I'm like, well, I mean, I like it too. <laughs> 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 All right, Katie. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule, which I know must be busy uh, to join us today on the podcast. I really appreciate it. No, this is really fun. And I, I really appreciate being part of the, the NASIO community. Uh, I didn't know before stepping into the role that it, uh, this, this community existed and everyone has been so wonderful and, and welcoming. So it's, it's great to know that there's a community of people across the U.S. that are, are supporting me. So thanks for, for having me on and everything great that you guys do. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We're happy to have you in the community and in the family. Thanks again for listening to NASIO Voices. NASIO Voices is a production of the National Association of State Chief Information Officers, or NASIO. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. We look forward to seeing some of you at the upcoming Leadership Summit in California in a couple of weeks. Can't wait. Talk with you next time.